Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Well, welcome everyone to our eight days that change the world Holy Week series. This is Tuesday, Holy Tuesday. We're glad that you're with us, whether you are live with us on this Zoom gathering or you're joining us via podcast. We're glad that you are with us. We have been, uh, we've got a journey now through the final week. The final week of, and we have been working around this image of the Holy Week as a three-legged stool. And um, in that three-legged stool, there are three upon which it is built. The days of Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and then what we will celebrate this coming Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Stools are, those. that three-legged stool is upon which our faith rests. And these other days that we're looking at, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday, are like the spindles that run from one leg to another. That's what gives support to those pivotal days. And as we saw last night, if you remove any of those three legs, um, I would argue that our faith collapses. And so yesterday on Holy Monday, when we gathered together, we saw that Jesus was returning to Jerusalem after the events of Palm Sunday. And he first came along as he was marching with his disciples, walking his way up to Jerusalem from Bethany, where he spent uh, the evening. And remember, we had the temple in the backdrop, and he sees this fig, fig tree on the side of the road, and he, he does what we called a visual or an enacted parable, and he curses that fig tree. And then once he goes uh, into uh, the city, he makes his way to the temple. And we went through the story of uh, what we often call the cleansing of the temple. Today is Holy Tuesday. Differing events today, he also went back that evening to Bethany. He stends his nights in Bethany. Um, and today on Holy Tuesday, he picks up where he left off yesterday um, by picking up that cursed fig tree in Matthew 21 and Mark 11, where we were last night, and he finishes out the lesson on that. And then he goes on back to the temple to teach, where he encounters some tough questions in the temple. And then just before uh, evening, as the sun was setting, he gets with his disciples on the Mount of Olivet, and he does, he engages in what we now commonly call the Olivet Discourse, which is the predictions again, third time, predictions of his upcoming death. So unfortunately, there's not enough time for us to go through all of those. And so tonight, we're going to focus our attention on Mark's account of what happens during these tough questions in the temple. But before we begin, and I failed to do this last evening, so I want to begin with a word of prayer. Is that okay if we do that? All right, I'll go ahead and lead us. Father, thank you for this time as we journey with you toward the cross. As we make our way through these eight days that change the world, open our eyes to the messages that you have for us as we engage together the scriptures that account the stories of these last days. May we be aware of the Holy Spirit's presence among us, for we make our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. I was thinking today as I was reviewing the topic material for tonight, that this pandemic that we're involved in is forcing us to ask some very tough questions. Questions like, how do we develop new drugs quickly and yet do it in a way that's safe? Questions like, 
how do we allocate resources that are scarce? How do we get them to the places they need to be? And maybe like how prepared are we to continue to give up some of our personal freedoms? Those among other questions came to mind today. And I remembered that a few years ago, I read an article that was entitled 50 tough questions you never ask yourself, but should. And I don't remember all of them, but I jotted down a couple. I remember one of the questions was how I define success. Remember, these are questions we're asking of ourselves. difficult questions sometimes. How will I define success? Am I living my passion? What do I most often choose to ignore? Do I feel good about the way I treat the most important people in my life? Do I feel like I express um, enough gratitude and appreciation for what I have and the people that I have? And are there any relationships that I want to improve or repair? These are things that I work on in my journaling time that are based um, that article from a few years back, from a few years back. And for many of us, and I would suggest you probably are part of it, these are tough questions. And Jesus encountered and employed some tough questions tonight in our text. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to turn back to, we're in the Gospel of Mark. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 11, and we're going to work our way through 11 and a good portion of 12. And then down in a way through together. And uh, while you're turning there in either your print Bible or your electronic, I think there's a reason why Jesus employed these tough questions. Because in the one sense, I think he is definitely confronting those people who are misusing their power. We saw that last evening when in the cursing of the fig tree and what that was illustrating, the misuse power of the religious leaders. I think sometimes he uses these tough questions to get people to think in a new way about something that they thought they knew well. And then sometimes I think he uses these tough questions to push people to actually verbalize, to put into words, to listen to themselves say what they believe. Because sometimes when we actually verbalize it, it doesn't sound quite as convincing to ourselves. And so I think we'll see two out of those three on display in tonight's uh, Holy Tuesday text. So as we saw last night when we left, the religious leaders are not happy with Jesus. We've had two successive days where the crowds have been gathered around and people are excited. They've been calling out, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's come in. He's turned over the table to the cheers of people, remembering this idea that it had become a house of revolutionaries, a den of thieves. And the people were on his side. But the religious authorities, for their part, they're not going to take these events of Holy Week sitting down. So they're continually working on ways in which they can figure out a way to arrest him, but they lack the opportunity because Jesus is just so popular. I mean, he's just so popular at this moment. So they find themselves in this conundrum. They want him gone, but if they attempt to arrest him, it's pretty clear to them that there's going to be a riot. And so these religious leaders resort to a much subtler tactic, at least they think it's subtler, and they try to trap Jesus into incriminating himself by answering a series of their own tough questions. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. And there's a series of, I want to say, four traps, and I think we can get through them if we move right along. 
that he sets that these religious leaders are setting for Jesus. And I want us to first listen as I read to see if you can listen for the trap question. And then we're going to pay attention to then how Jesus deals with that. And Brenda, for the sake of the podcast, after listening to a couple of them, I'm going to go ahead and read tonight because it's not coming through quite as clearly as I'd like it to. And so um, for those, the benefit of those on podcast, I'm going to go ahead and read. And so we're going to start, uh, first of all, in Mark chapter 11, just a little bit ahead of where we left off last evening. Mark chapter 11, and listen as I begin in verse 27, and I'll read through 33. And again, you're listening for the trap question, all right? Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem again. And as Jesus was walking around the temple, the chief priests, legal experts, and elders came to him. They asked, what kind of authority do you have for doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said in verse 29, I have a question for you. Give me an answer. Then I'll tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Here's a question, verse 30. Was John's baptism of heavenly or of human origins? Answer me. They argued among themselves. If we say it's of the heavenly origin, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we can't say it's of earthly origin, that would be a problem too. They said this because they were afraid of the crowd, because they all thought John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus replied, neither will I tell you what kind of authority they have to do these things. So somebody who's been listening, what is the trap question here? What is the trap question? I think um, what kind of authority do you have for doing these things is a trap question. Who gave you this authority? Do you have for doing these things? In the vernacular, it'd be something like, what gives you the right to do these things and act like you're the expert? That's the trap question. But what's the trap here? And what I mean by that is we have to think about what are the potential answers, because if it's a trap question, it's because there's potential answers, neither of which is probably that great. So what's the trap here? What are the possible answers that could be made here? Uh, you could say from God, and they could call him a heretic. Yeah, so you have that answer. So if he answers from God, he's uh, he, that's blasphemy, and which is cause for? Arrest. Uh, arrest at the very least. Okay, that's one possible answer, so that's not a good one. How else might he answer it? Is it a problem if he says, like, me, like it is of my authority? I just decided I have the authority. I'm the expert myself. And what's the trap there? What's the problem with that? Well, clearly, if his authority comes from himself, then it's not to be trusted. Yeah, it can't. It's it, there's no respect there. A loss of respect, a loss of authority. You can't just self-proclaim yourself. Well, I guess you can self-proclaim yourself an expert, but that doesn't mean people are going to listen. And there's one more potential answer. If he answers. Well, I got my response or I got my authority from you, the religious leaders, then of course they can look at him and say, you liar, we never gave you that authority. So in either way that he answers that, it's a trap. 
So they said, what kind of authority do you have for doing these things? What's implied in their question? That he doesn't have the authority. Yeah, that's the implication, right? You don't have it, and why don't you have it? Because we didn't give it to you. <laughs> number one, we didn't give it to you. And number two, we don't think God did either. Right, why would they think that God didn't either? You gotta, think God them the authority. I'm sorry, say again? They think God gave them the authority. And since they didn't recognize him, no, nothing good could come out of Nazareth, right? There's no way that this kind of a person, unlearned person from that area can do it. So in the back, just a little bit of background here, the way it's described is it's chief priests, legal experts, and the elders. That's a reference to the Sanhedrin. And just a reminder, the Sanhedrin was led by the high priest um, and had 71 members. They based that on Moses, what Moses had established back in the Sinai. So within that Sanhedrin, there were the Sadducees, and that was a group that included current priests and um, past high priests and sometimes called the chief priests as they were here and the Jewish aristocracy. These are wealthy elderly men who had gained respect in the community and that group had authority over the temple. And then there's a second group within, that, within the Sanhedrin known as the Pharisees, we're familiar with them. They were the keepers of the law, the rabbis, the lawyers, and they had authority over the law in terms of its teaching and interpretation. And much like our own civil government, they're constantly at battle with one another. They were a lot, oftentimes, opposed to each other. And then together, they kind of functioned as the Supreme Court for, for the Jews. So knowing that backdrop, that there are two different groups, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, it included high priests and current priests and the Jewish aristocracy and the teachers of the law. What does this suggest to us that representatives from all of these groups within the Sanhedrin came together to question Jesus? What does it suggest to us about, in the story, about them coming together to question Jesus? I would say that they probably saw him as a threat to their authority. So that to combine, they saw them... Yeah, saw him as a threat to who they are and what they're doing. So certainly they were concerned about that. Certainly, good. What else? I was just thinking along those lines to kind of have, have a backing. Like if I'm going up against somebody that I think has authority or power of some kind, like I don't want it to be just little old me like coming out onto the battlefield. That's right. And especially if I'm going to come questioning someone, like, what kind of right do you have to be doing what you're doing? I'm going to be like, look at these other people who agree with me. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> Certainly. Certainly. I, one that I keep hitting on is that it's intentional, it's planned, it's not accidental. In other words, they're not, they're not hanging out together and just suddenly, oh, there's Jesus. Let's go ask him some questions. This is a trap. This is being laid down as a trap because they said, who gave you authority to do these things? What are these things? What is that referring to? Anybody remember? Looked a few of them last night, but you may remember even if you weren't with us. 
What were these things that he was doing? Well, he confronted them in the, in the temple. He confronted the money changers. Yeah, so the confronting the religious leaders and calling them out. Yeah. What else? Parting the fig tree. Yeah, so he had, yeah, by calling him out by doing that, he had driven the money changers out. In other passages, he talked about that the temple would be destroyed and rebuilt. And generally speaking, he's just stirring up rebellion everywhere. And then he's like, who told you you could do this? So how did Jesus respond to the trap? Did he take the bait? Go back and look at the story. How did he respond? Did he take the bait? No, because he turned it around back on them and kind of put them in a trick question, if you will. Uh, so he pulled the, the, the classic teacher, Bloom's question with a question. <laughs> Bloom's taxonomy, spend 35 to 50% of your time asking different types of questions. So he turns around, doesn't take the bait, he turns around and asks questions now for his own purposes. Remember, sometimes to confront those who misuse power. Sometimes to cause people to think in a new way about something they think they know and to push people to verbalize what they believe. But here's the question. Jesus, in asking that question, doesn't he lay a trap of his own? And if so, how? So he said, I mean, they kind of, when they were talking amongst themselves, they kind of laid it out. They said, well, we can't say from heaven because we don't want to believe in John. But if John's baptism came from heaven, then we have to believe in John. But if John's baptism came from man, that's also problematic. Certainly. And it's problematic specifically because the people revere John the Baptist, right? So right. Said that this baptism, all of these things that have been happening that John the Baptist brought about, if they say, oh, that's not of God, they're facing a revolt there too. So he's turned their trap, if you will, back around on them, where there's really not a great answer to that question. So they ultimately answer his question, how? Mm -hmm. Yeah. IDK. IDK. But then it gives a reason why they refuse to answer. Notice there's a reason why they refuse to answer. They didn't know is the answer they gave, which is basically saying, yeah, we really did know, but there's a reason why they're not. They were afraid of the people. Yeah, they're afraid of the people. There comes this idea. There's this idea. There's always a riot just about ready to break out. So that helps us, again, cinematically look at what's happening here where there's people everywhere all around it's just there's this bubbling of excitement of tension of all of this and it's just like one little spark could send the whole thing up and, and so they're definitely um walking on pins and needles and so trap one whose authority is a bust and then after that jesus throws in a parable to illustrate their hatred which we won't have time to look at but he he makes it very pointed that he's talking about them. But let's keep going. That's not the only trap they laid for him. Let's take a look at the next Holy Tuesday trap, if you will. It's in Mark chapter 12 now. And that's after the parable of the tenant farmers, which he gave to illustrate the point that he had just made. And now we're in Mark chapter 12, and so we get a look at <clears throat> next trap. And listen again now for the trap question. 
Verse 13 of 12, they sent some of the Pharisees and supporters of Herod, sometimes called the Herodians, to trap him in his words. They've actually spelled it out now. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you're genuine and you don't worry about what people think. You don't show favoritism, but you teach God's way as it really is. Does the law allow people to pay Caesar, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not? Verse 15, since Jesus recognized their deceit, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring a coin, show it to me. And they brought him one. He said to them, whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. And his reply left them overcome with wonder. So you were listening for the trap question. What's the trap question here? And how so, what makes it a trap? Well, they may have considered paying taxes to the Roman Empire as um, maybe blasphemy because maybe it was viewed as putting the Roman government over God. Okay. The trap question is, does the law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In other words, should we pay our taxes? Well, I guess some Jews might have considered paying their taxes to be tantamount to um, worship, like idol worship, idolatry, because Caesar kind of posited himself a god. And so, like, does giving money to this man who fancies himself a god can, can constitute idolatry? Mm -hmm. um, and also, it was just against the Jewish interest to support Rome. So it was kind of like a political and a social and a legal One. distaste for paying Rome. But yeah, that's true. But now remember now, let's put it in the as we read through it in the in the light of what's just taken place in the last couple of days. So on Sunday, particularly, he's marching in. Right, the crowds are yelling, are are yelling, uh, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the. If they have an expectation that he is the Messiah who's come to save them, so if he answers yes, you should pay taxes then it's going to shatter their expectations, right? That he's this Messiah who's going to overthrow Roman rule. But on the other hand, if he says no, what's his problem with saying no? It's against the law not to pay the taxes. And since it's against the law, what's, the, what's going to be problematic for him? He'd get arrested. He'd get arrested. The Romans... <laughs> Or, you know, agitating revolt and they're going to have something, Rome is going to have something to hold them on. So either answer is going to cause a revolt of some kind, right? And I, I like it that I, when I was looking at it, I think about, well, how is this, um, there's this, uh, this good cop, bad cop routine is really what I think is happening here when you look at it. Because they send in a Pharisee who is known for his zeal for the law. 
And then you've got this Herodian. These are the people who were some considered to be traitors, who were loyal to Herod <laughs> and his, you know, puppet kingdom. So he sends in this, they send in this good cop, bad cop routine. What does this unlikely duo being sent communicate to you about these people, these religious leaders? What does it communicate to you? That they're willing to unite against Jesus. Certainly they're willing to unite against Jesus. They're crafty. Certainly crafty. I would say it's almost representative of desperation. Like they're That's making the friends with their closest enemies just to get rid of this guy. Yeah, they could not have been any further from each other. The Pharisees and the Herodians were about on as opposite a spectrum politically and religiously as you could be. And yet here they are playing the good cop, bad cop routine. And they put in front of them, the trap here is it's an either or trap. Do you see this? It's should we or should we not? It's either or. So how does Jesus respond to their either or dilemma? He asks them to bring him a picture, an actual coin. He's going to do a little illustration. But how does he respond to their either or dilemma? Both and. Thank you. That didn't take too much. <laughs> a both and. What's his both and answer to him? Pay taxes and give honor to God. You're, you're honoring God by following the law. Okay. Others? I guess you could think that you give Caesar the, the tax and everything else is God's. And that is too, but in a sense, it's much bigger than just the tax. Yeah, certainly. So Denarii has Caesar's image on it, his inscription on it. Jesus holds it up and says, in essence, as long as Caesar is in power, it's appropriate to pay taxes to him. And then he says, but we're also to give God the things that are God's, i.e. God's apostrophe S, meaning that since we're made in God's image, we owe everything that we, we are and have to him. So we are to give him all of that. It's the both and here. So trap number two, whose allegiance is also a bust. He says, pay your taxes and worship God. And I love the way they responded. Uh, he left them, his reply left them overcome with wonder. Like, how did he wiggle his way out of that? Because, you know, either or traps are the hardest one. You understand that? It's like, when did you stop beating your husband or your wife? there's no possible answer it's a it's a trap answer the either or and so he builds beautifully this this um both and so that's the second trap they're not done yet they're not giving up yet they think well he's smart but we're smarter so let's move on to trap number three so having failed twice once with the chief priests the legal experts and elders then the second time we just saw with Pharisees and Herodians, people on opposite teams. Um, 
they send in, I'm going to call it the substitutes. It's like, okay, we're going to get the scabs to come on in. We're going to send in the Sadducees. Do you envy these guys? <laughs> Y'all envy these guys? No. I mean, me. I mean they've no. been two other people have gone in and they're pretty smart people. At least they thought they were. And they've been pretty well mowed down. And it's almost like in a baseball thing. It's like, okay, the, the team is in the zone and they've hit every pitcher in front of them. And the coach comes on, says, yes, Mike, you can do it. Get out there. You can strike them all out in nine pitches and you'll be retire the side. Yeah, we'll see. So let's look at Mark 12. We're going to pick up in verse 28 now. Excuse me. Did I do that right? Uh, let's see. No, 18. Uh, 18, sorry. I don't know why I typed it in wrong. I apologize. Uh, verse 18, Sadducees, and he puts this parenthetical in us to make sure we remember, they deny that there is a resurrection or any kind of an afterlife. Came to Jesus and asked, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a widow but no children, the brother must marry and the widow must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Kinsman Redeemer, the book of Ruth. You remember these stories, right? So now they concoct this story, beginning of verse 20. Now there were seven brothers. For seven brides? No. Seven brothers for one bride. The first one married a woman. When he died, he left no children. The second married her and died without leaving any children. The third did the same. None of the seven left any children. Finally, the woman died. At the resurrection, when they all rise up, whose wife will he be? All seven were married to her. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, isn't this the reason that you are wrong because you don't know either the scriptures or God's power? When people rise from the dead, they won't marry, nor will they be given in marriage. Instead, they will be like God's angels. And as for the resurrection from the dead, haven't you read in the scroll from Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He isn't the God of the dead, but of the living, living, you are seriously mistaken. So you were listening. What's the trap question here? And why is it a trap? Well, first, they concoct this wild scenario of seven brothers and each of them acting as the kinsmen, and then all of them dying with no children. So that that is so far out to in left field, it's it's unreal. The trap the trap question seems to be okay. So after the resurrection, which they didn't even believe in, this whose is, wife is she going to be? Yeah. So at the resurrection, something they did not even believe in. The question is, whose wife? Will she be? So, well, hold it. This is the Sadducees, right? This is the Sadducees who don't even believe it. Oh, I thought the Sadducees believed in the resurrection and the Pharisees did not. No, the good no, way. That, that's, that's why they were sad, you see. They're sad, you see, because they don't believe there's an afterlife. Whereas the Pharisees look at the law, it's fair, I see. F A I R, fair, I see. I interpret the law. That's. I learned that a long time ago. It helps a little bit. So how is the trap? How is there a trap in this? It's a simple question. Whose wife will she be? 
pick number four, right? By the way, argumentum ad absurdum is the Latin term that jumped into my mind. It's like, this is an argument from absurdity. What are the chances that there will be seven of these? I guess sounds you argue like she was barren. Monty sounds like Monty Python. It does sound like a Monty Python skit, right? One, you know, seven brides for, wait, seven brothers for one bride. And what makes them think that she's going to want any of them? <laughs> so what's the trap here? Think about it for a moment. You got to think a little bit about where they started out. They posed the question. They framed it. Well, they called him teacher to begin with, which sets up the whole draft. Right, so they said teacher, and then they invoked another key name that I think plays into it. What did they do? Moses. Oh. Yeah, so Moses wrote for us. Moses wrote for us, and here's the rule. You have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do this. In other words, he put that into place. So what's the trap? If he answers number one, number two, number three, number five, number seven, if he answers none of them, what's the problem? He's broken the law. He's, yeah, let's put it this way. Maybe I wouldn't use the word broken, but he's basically countermanded. Mm -hmm. He's basically countermanded what Moses, puts him at odds with the law and what Moses said, right? And even though it's as absurd as it could possibly be, seven brothers for one bride, and there's full of irony because the ones asking the question don't even believe in the resurrection or afterlife. So then what really is the purpose of their question, do you think? What's the purpose of it? Based on- but Sorry to go back. I don't understand how it's a trap question because when he is talking about what Moses wrote, it's it's about the living like this law is for the living because it's when the brother dies what's going to happen with the wife that's alive so it, it seems just fine to say that there is no marriage after they die and are raised up again well his aunt, that answer is is a wise answer there's no such thing as marriage which was true but remember that's jesus's response He's telling him the reason why I'm not answering this question the way you want me to answer the question. You're from the beginning. Like it's not applicable. It's not even, exactly. It's not even, you've made an absurd thing that's not even applicable because even if everything you said is true and all seven of them never had a child, it doesn't matter because the question of who they're going to be married in heaven is absurd because there is no marriage in heaven. And you would know that if you really understood what the law was all about. So there had to be a different purpose behind their question. Remember now, this is the third time that they've come and tried to trap Jesus. What's happened in the first two? Failure. Not just failure, what else? Was losing, yes, to your question. Like they're trying to get him to reject Moses and reject the law. Exactly. They're certainly trying to get him to do that but they know that he's probably not, that no matter if he answered that question directly, which one would she be married to? 
no matter which one he answered, he would look ridiculous. Because how would you possibly know? I don't know, is four better than three? Is the five the best one? Was seven the real marriage? Was one, was two? Because they're all legal. My point is, I think he's actually trying to make, the, make Jesus look as ridiculous with this ridiculous thing as Jesus has done to them in his questioning of them. But Jesus turns the table on them, right? So he tells them pointedly that they're wrong. There's just no marriage in heaven. And then isn't it interesting that how he drives that point home in verses 26 and 27, he picks back up on Moses. But does anybody remember, this is a quote from Exodus 3. Who knows what's happening in Exodus chapter 3? That's the burning bush. So Exodus 3 is the burning bush. So he quotes from Moses's burning bush in support of his answer that there's no marriage in heaven and God is, there is a resurrection. You guys just don't know it because you haven't paid attention. How does he drive that point home that you just have misread the scripture? How does he drive that home by, by quoting from the burning bush where he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. How is he driving home his point that you have totally misread the scriptures if you think there is no resurrection? Well, isn't it at the time, aren't all three of those people dead? Yes. So how can he be the God of them if they're dead? Interesting. <laughs> but how, that's basically the question basically you're at that's what the religious leaders that's what the sadducees would have said well they're dead but notice how he phrased it he quotes from yahweh speaking to moses and says i am here's the verb i am not i was was I'm going to tell you an interesting story here. We got just a couple of minutes Two, not this year, but last March, March of 2019, when I was up with Len, uh, Len Sweet, my mentor, we had a, um, a uh, Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox poet, uh, poet and a poet teacher, um, well-respected, well-renowned, um, taught at the University of Virginia, coveted rewards for poetry from his team, his college. And after a couple of days of listening to him talk, and if you don't know a lot about um, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, it has a lot of uh, veneration of the saints. It has similar characteristics to Roman, Cath Roman Catholicism and the veneration of different saints and saintly days. But one of the things he kept doing is he would refer to all of the biblical characters and all of these saints and all of his people who had passed on in the present tense. Not, he was just this amazing person. He was, he was, or she was, it was, she is, he is. And after a little while, a couple of us caught up on it. And um, during one of the breaks, I, I said, that must be a conscious thing to you. And he said, what? I said, referring to people who, are, who have passed on in the present tense. And he looked at me totally baffled. Took a little drink from some brown water. 
and looked at me again and he said, um, you know what, I don't never really even thought about it until you just said that. But in our tradition, we honestly do believe in the resurrection of the dead. So why would you not refer to them as being alive just in a different way? And we all went, hmm, you might be right. And this is an example of that where Jesus, I mean, Jesus quotes back to them, I am, present tense, they are still personhood. They're just in a different realm now. So that's a trap number three, whose wife, and I would argue that's an epic fail, but they got one more. They think they've got one more ace up their sleeve. And so we're going to take a look at this in our final trap of the evening. And it's Mark chapter 12. And we're going to keep going in verse 28. Again, we're listening for the trap question. One of the legal experts heard their dispute. I'm assuming he's talking about the dispute between the Sadducees and Jesus. And he saw how well Jesus answered them. Maybe he's been listening to all of them. He came over and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus replied, the most important one is Israel, listen, our God is one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The legal expert said to him, well said, teacher, you have truthfully said that God is one and there's no other beside him. And to love God with all of the heart, a full understanding, and all of one's strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all kinds of entirely burned offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered with wisdom, he said to them, you aren't far from God's kingdom. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So what's the trap question here? Well, there were a lot of commandments, and so they're asking which one's the most important. So which commandment of the 600, roughly 600 or so commandments that have been laid out either in the law or by Moses and been added on by the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, which of those is the most important of all? What's the trap here? Well, I guess part, by saying that one is more important than the others, the implication is that some of them are not important. All right, so... Well, no, most, most just means that one is, others are less important. Okay, so... Not that they're not important. You're creating a hierarchy, okay. But to suggest that following one could be, like, the ultimate obedience and could excuse you from following the rest is also kind of True. a trap. Any other thoughts on the trap here? Think through it. What's the trap here? There's only one answer, appropriate answer that you can give to this question. Any other answer that you give to this question is wrong if you don't answer it with one simple three-letter word. Which is the most important? God. 
all of them. Some of you are smiling. No, that's it. You can't, there, there wasn't any kind of like you can, you know, regulate. In other words, in the law, if you transgress on the smallest part of it, you are guilty of what? All of them. The whole, as my grandmother used to say, kit and caboodle. Does anybody know what that, where does that phrase come from? Kit and caboodle. Do I don't have anybody? I'll have to call up NPR and do, uh, you have a word. <laughs> the only answer you can give there is all. Anything else would be wrong. But Jesus answers that he sidesteps that question and he gives this amazing answer. If you were summing up his answer, what is he saying? How did he answer it? He's kind of answering all because like he's sort of he's giving like the the two meta commandments. If you were to try to summarize all of them, it's love God and love your neighbor. Because everything you're doing is for God. Like all of our actions should come from a heart that loves God. So did Jesus come up with this answer himself? I mean, is this, are these new words from Jesus? No. It's a different phrasing of what all of the, it's a meta commandment, as, as Jason said. It's, he's do, making a summary of what all of the law is intended. Exactly. And we studied it a couple of months ago. He quotes back to them their own summation of the law that they would quote over and over and they would recite over and many times every day called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, pay attention, love God with your every. Remember we studied that a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I guess it is now. The answer to that question is the one that they answer themselves every single day, reciting it hundreds of times sometimes, depending on how religious they are. And Jesus, when he replies that way, the legal expert goes, uh, I mean, you got the final Jeopardy question. You're spot on. There's nothing he can say because if he goes, oh, you're wrong, Jesus, then he's basically said everything that we've been doing since the time of Moses, reciting the Shema in belief that this is the meta commandments is all wrong. And he goes, you're right, Jesus. And then Jesus says, I love that. He says, you're not far from God's kingdom. What do you think that means? Do you think there's a play on words there? It, well, I guess it makes me think of like, you're on the right path. You're on the right path. Good. It might, ha it might be a foreshadowing of what Jesus already knows is going to happen with his crucifixion. Okay. You're not far from God's kingdom. Well, when he'd talk in parables, he would talk about the kingdom of God is like, yeah, da, 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 da. So he, he talked about it a lot. But why is he not far from God's kingdom? Is it because... Do you mean like physically, like, I am Jesus, I am the fulfillment of all these commands. Like, you're physically not far from me, but it's also like, you almost know the answer if you study it more? 
And, and I love the way you said it because it's exactly right. You're not far from God's kingdom because you're literally steps away from the king of the kingdom. So you, you're, the answer is right here in front of you. If you'll just take enough time to pause and consider what you just said in light of who's standing in front of you, who's answered you, you're right there. The king is right in front of you if you have eyes to open up and see. And I love it that the response to that immediately is, what is the response of everybody who gathers around? The very last phrase of that test. <laughs> what, is, what, what does this mean? <laughs> they just zip. Yeah, yeah. yeah there is no response. <laughs> it's very specific. It says, no one, what? Aired. Aired at a question. No one asked him any more questions. Yeah. Why? he's got the answers he not only yeah he's got the answers for sure but you he's basically saying it doesn't matter how smart you think you are he's demonstrated his authority exactly his he pulled, he, he pulled the mic drop <laughs> mic drop he's demonstrated that he knows that it's a trap he doesn't fall for it And here's the key, I think, as we wrap up our time. As I thought about these four, these four traps, and by the way, this last one is which commandment? Which commandment? As I thought about it, Jesus responded with, to each of these with grace and truth. He responded with grace and truth to every trap question. Let me say that again. He responded with grace and truth to every trap question. So why is that such an important duo? Because it's not always what you say, but how you say it. So he was like doing it in a non-offensive, aggressive way to help them kind of come to their own conclusion about his responses. Okay. Others sometimes the sometimes the truth is really hard. It comes across really hard. Remember at the beginning when I talked about those quest tough questions we all need to ask ourselves, but we don't want to. Part of that is the truth sometimes is hard to to uh, write down for me in journaling when I ask myself those questions. Sometimes writing my answer that truthful answers to that is painful. Why else? I get the feeling that they had been arguing amongst themselves uh, about these questions for some time. Perhaps. That's true. possible. So what- I think it's interesting that this last legal expert actually recognized him as a teacher. I think the others were trying to set him up, you know, for failure. And this guy basically said, hey, this is the real deal. And because he, look at what he says at the end, it's much more important than all kinds of entire, entirely burned offerings and sacrifices. How many times do you ever see the Sadducees or the Pharisees ever say something like that? That's true. I don't know. This guy to me, you know, I know you say he's close, He's not far from Jesus and therefore not, but I think literally this also means this gentleman is actually 
close to recognizing who Jesus is. Yeah, and if I miss if I miscommunicate, I think it's the both and. I think it's a play on words, yeah. right? Yeah. You're right there, you're, I'm right. What you need just to get over the edge. So what happens? Truth. What happens when one, the other, or both are absent from our responses to the tough questions that come our way? And there's been some tough ones during this pandemic season. I'm sure you know. What happens when one, the other, or both are absent? People don't hear your answer if you are um, aggressive or, um, can, yeah, um, <laughs> argumentative. I mean, put someone down. Yeah. A lack of winsomeness is a good word. Winsome, grace, gracious. I think it goes back to what we talked about on Sunday when we talked about how many facts do you need before you believe someone. And if you say something, you can, again, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And that determines whether or not people believe you. If you're saying it defensively, then I'm trying to figure out why are you so defensive? Right. If I say it with so much authority, then I'm trying to figure out what gave you that authority to say that. And so if, if you deliver it with truth and grace and you give me just enough where I can take it, I can digest it and then go, oh, okay, and I feel good after you say it, regardless of whether you're disciplining me or whether you're honoring me, then it makes it better. Certainly, absolutely. Good job. Well said. And I think it's that balance of those grace and truth. If you get, if we miss either one of them, that's, that's the challenge. You can't throw away the truth. You can't uh, abandon the truth in the favor of grace, right? You have to be winsome, but there's truth involved. And so I know it's a difficult challenge, but it's one that I hope that um, you will engage in here. As I said, um, as we wrap up our time here, uh, these are, each one of these are, uh, being recorded and they're going to be available as a podcast that you can go back and listen to again or share with your friends. Uh, also know that when you, as soon as we're off here, if you'd like to go back to Church Flare, you can go on under the sermons tab and there's a devotional that follows this that you can use uh, tonight or tomorrow morning. And um, David's telling me about the kit and people uh, means the entire amount of things or entire group of people being discussed. Oh, soldier's kit, which I that makes sense. And the caboodle is, what is that? A large amount of ill-gotten money. Oh, okay. They, they, I saw that the caboodle represents like a stack of something. Good. That makes sense. It said it was a, it said it was a New England expression. Well, we, now we know what kid and caboodle is all about. So uh, if you want to follow up on that um, devotional, uh, you can do that and it'll be up all week long. All right. Well, I'm really glad you guys are with us tonight. Let me have a word of prayer as we get ready to close, and then I'll have, um, we'll have the words of the grace, and we'll uh, let you get on, and we'll uh, see you again tomorrow evening. Let's have a word of prayer together, all right? Father God, thank you again for this time. We can engage in your word. We can allow your Holy Spirit to teach us more about how we can um, balance out grace and truth in the beautiful way that was demonstrated for us tonight. May it be so in our lives through the power of your Spirit working in and through us. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. All right, so here's what I think we're going to do. Everybody mute yourself, and I'm going to say the words of the grace, <laughs> and then you kind of just kind of mimic it along with me, like maybe do something, yeah, do something like that, and uh, we'll finish up our time. All right, here's the words of the grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all each day 
this day and until we meet again. Amen. All right, guys. We'll see you again tomorrow night. Make sure if you have any questions, text me, give me a call, email me. We'll see you tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Bye for now. Be safe. Bye, y'all. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.